The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by conductor Karina Kanalakis. Welcome, Karina. Thank you. Nice it's to be here. so great to have you here. Anybody who knows the story of how Terry Fisher became a conductor, playing his instrument in a European ensemble and then being encouraged by a mentor to take up conducting, will be familiar with your story because something similar happened with you, didn't it? Yes. You were advised that you ought to take up this conducting game by Sir Simon Rattle, of all people. What did he say to you? Did you need a lot of convincing? I actually did need a lot of convincing. (laughs) Um, I was very devoted to being a violinist, Mm -hmm. and I loved playing, and I also, I guess I sort of thought the idea of my becoming a conductor was ridiculous. I I really didn't (laughs) take it seriously, And, and when he suggested that I that I do take it seriously that that definitely helped build some sort of confidence but it took me a number of years mm-hmm. still even after that to really have the conviction to sort of go for it and allow myself to take time away from the violin right do you get to play much anymore or is that, or are those days behind you I always have it with me yeah. everywhere I go good I never part from it um, and for the moment I'm not playing so much in public because I just have too much on my plate. With you them. are very, very busy. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but I want to mention something that's um, talked about in your bio, and I think this is one of the interesting little secret regions of the conducting map, and I'm talking about the whole last-minute replacement phenomenon, which happens to a lot of you when you're in the early parts of your careers, and it can be a very instructive and formative experience, I'm sure. So talk about what it's like to get that call and and to show up and just nail it the way you did a couple of times. Um, it happened to me so many times. Yeah. Um, in different situations in different countries. And um, I mean, at the time, I the, the first the first time that it happened was in Dallas at the mm-hmm. Dallas Symphony, and Jab van Sweden, who was the music director at the time, um, had an injury, and so I had. A about one day of notice, and that was for two subscription concerts, and it was Shostakovich Eighth Symphony, which, if anybody knows that piece, it's like an hour-long wartime. Yeah, and drama. not exactly something that's just in your daily repertoire. Not at all. <laughs> um, but and of course, I'd been at all the rehearsals and I'd been studying it and everything. Sure. But to sort of get up on no rehearsals and conduct it for the first time, and this was at a point in my life as a conductor where I was still relatively inexperienced and I had actually never conducted a piece that long before. Interesting. Where, you know, where you have to pace yourself. Sure, physically and physically, mentally. Oh yeah. my God, it killed me. I yeah. mean, it, it was a Saturday night and then the next sun- Sunday afternoon and I remember being so just physically sore as if I had yeah. gone to the gym yeah. for six hours or something um, and, and also mentally just and emotionally uh, completely wrecked uh, and the soloist on that concert was Emmanuel Axe, so that also made it even more nerve-wracking. Yeah. But after that happened, I sort of looked at myself a little bit differently because I, I saw that I could do it. And the orchestra had a positive response to it, and they were very supportive and sure. you know, telling me, good job. And, you know, confidence is a very tricky thing for a conductor. And I think when you're young, especially if you've played in great orchestras as a player, you're very aware of how bad you are in the beginning. Yeah. And that was a big thing for me. That was a big hurdle to get over, to sort of be be willing to sort of learn in front of everyone. 
Yeah. And grow in front of everyone and make mistakes in front of everyone. And Dallas, my, my two years with the Dallas Symphony really gave me that incredible number of rehearsals and concerts where I was allowed to try things out. And I was uh, supported by the musicians and they knew that I was young and just starting out and that was that was huge, and then it and then so it happened over and over again. This last minute thing with Nicholas Harnoncourt in Europe, right? And it happened in uh, Denmark. Uh, Tamer Kanov canceled, and I was called, and I became this person that everybody kind of knew <laughs> could do things in the last second. Right. Cincinnati Symphony had happened actually with a friend of mine whose husband didn't get in because of a visa problem. <laughs> they called me the day before to come in and take over the whole week, wow. and I happened to be on vacation. It was just before Christmas time. Yeah. New York and so this was not a week you were covering like in Dallas this was a, this a was real like out, out of the blue, blue. Yeah. can you come to Cincinnati yeah. tonight wow. on a plane literally it was one o'clock in the afternoon I was wow. having lunch in Greenwich Village with a friend and got this call from my manager like you need to call me <laughs> check please you said yeah that. <laughs> and it was it was it was crazy so so that sort of thing happened so many times that it definitely gave me a little boost yeah I mean do you feel like your career could have gone any other way do you feel like the confidence you've built up with these experiences was something that couldn't have been reproduced if you had a more sort of traditional path possibly yeah mm-hmm. i i mean it's so hard to say you know life is so weird things happen and, and it's sort of like those remember those mad libs game yeah. games where you would change the ending of the story or i used to read these books these sci-fi books when i was a kid where you could choose alternate oh, yeah. endings choose your own adventure yeah, yeah. and I, I used to love that because yeah. it's sort of this idea of well, going back in time if i had changed one thing would i be where i am I actually, I don't, I'm not so sure. Yeah. You know, we one could say, oh, it's fate, and this is exactly what I was meant to do. And um, I do feel that I have found my most natural way of music making. Mm-hmm. I do think that in the end, even though it's hard to admit, and I love playing the violin, that being in front of the orchestra without the instrument is more natural for me. It's more natural for me to sort of be the one who galvanizes everybody sure. than it was for me to sit in a practice room, pack, you know, going doing Paganini caprices over and over and over again. And sure. th- that was always a bit of a pain. Yeah. <laughs> but you, so you, so you belong there. You, I think it's better for, for my personality. Yeah. You know, and I have some really good friends that are major soloists, violin, cello, piano. Mm-hmm. And I see the way they practice, and I see the way they can obsess over one little passage, and they enjoy that obsession. Yeah. And I never had that kind of obsessive quality about, like, technical violin stuff. Yeah, sure. <laughs> about music, yes. Sure. But I just couldn't really be bothered to sort of have to play the Sibelius Concerto over and over and over and over and over sure. and over again and enjoy practicing the same passage over and over again, which is really what soloists have to do. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really, I'm happy with how things turned out. Well, so are we. It's great to have you here this week. And, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the, the soloist life. I've always thought that an analog in the sports world was a pro tennis player. It just seems, it's a lonely existence. Mm-hmm. All eyes on you. Nobody but you controlling your fate. Mm-hmm. Now, a tennis player obviously has no violinist is playing a concerto with another con- person on the other side of a net playing the <laughs> same piece right back to them. But I've always thought this, the solitude of that life was similar to the violinist and cellist. Of the That's world so that funny that you said that because when I was 14 years old, I wanted nothing more than to be like Anna Kornikova. Sure. 
I want nothing more than to be Roger Federer right now, and I'm 10 years older than right. him. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about some of the great things that have happened to you. I know that you were a winner at Schulte Conducting Competition in 2016, which is a huge honor and would have been the results of the experience. Maybe not, you know, tangible results, but the internal stuff. I mean, it's uh, to be attached to that name, George mm-hmm. Schulte, is a big honor. Sure. And that foundation that gives that award is still actually run by his widow. Right. And Lady Valerie Schulte. And I, I met her. And actually, what was really special was last September, I conducted at the BBC Proms. And Lady Valerie Schulte lives in London. And she came to the performance. Mm-hmm. And that was a really special moment for me because she told me that she was so happy that I got the award and she was sure that her husband would have been proud of what I did that day. That's something to hear. That was really the most special thing about that whole That's award. That's really incredible. I, yeah. You know, I also saw um, recent news about you that you'll be conducting at the 2018 Nobel Prize Ceremony, which is great. You get to go to Stockholm and conduct that fabulous orchestra and, you know, have this amazing experience. So you're already part of distinguished lists of conductors, but the people who've done this concert, I mean, we're talking Dudamel, Nelsons, Muti, Eschenbach, unbelievable list of people. And you're right there. And I wonder if high profile special event gigs like this, I mean, is there an extra pressure attached there? And please, if there isn't, don't let me put it on you. Oh, no, there is. <laughs> there is. I mean, I think it's just such a huge honor. I didn't expect that. And it's the Stockholm Philharmonic is an orchestra that I know really well. And we have a relationship and I go back there every year, but yeah. it's didn't expect that. And um it's also such a huge vote of confidence from the orchestra. Absolutely. And and also from Lisa Bacchesvili, who's the soloist, and she's, to me, like the embodiment of the perfect violinist. Yeah. She's just, she's the queen of violin. Yeah. I mean, no one on earth can play like her. Mm-hmm. It's ultimate perfection. Mm-hmm. And I have sort of, as a violinist, worshipped her for many years, and she's a soloist on that concert. I sort of, I feel like I'm, in a way, sort of, out of my league just simply because I don't I haven't even been conducting for that long and as you said the other conductors who've done this concert are Gustavo Dudamel and Ricardo Muti and people like that so so I'm hugely honored and that's another example of something that it also does give me confidence Mm -hmm. because for them to believe in me to be able to represent the musical level that is necessary for an event like that is huge and it makes me feel so so good you yeah. know and so excited and i love that orchestra so much and we have a great relationship so i think it's going to be something really really special look at your background and some of the things that you've done and since we're an opera company and a symphony it was I, I've, I've enjoyed seeing that 
opera's important to you, and mm-hmm. you've done quite a bit of it, including mm-hmm. some premieres, including a premiere with our soloist from this week, Conrad Tao, yeah. the David Lang piece. Um, I'm curious, with your symphony guest work, that your calendar is going to start to be really, really full. You can look on your website now and see how busy you are just for the next month. Is it getting harder to take opera work, you know, in, inclusive of such mm-hmm. longer periods of time? Is it is it something that you're going to have to really work hard to leave space for? Such a good question, which I can't even can't even <laughs> answer it. Yes, it's 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 getting difficult. It yeah. is difficult because right now my symphonic concerts are planned into like the 21-22 season right. and I have things planned now even beyond that. Right. Um so you know, you make commitments as a conductor and they go very, very far into the future. I think a lot of people don't realize how far ahead of time a lot of these seasons are planned. You're right about that. People don't know. And yeah. the opera world plans even further in advance right. than the symphony world. And yeah. you're talking about singers and conductors are booked three to four seasons in advance right. for places like La Scala and the Met and Royal Opera House. But even the smaller opera houses often plan three to four seasons in advance. So, so then I'm talking about you know, trying to anticipate where I'm going to be in my life and what I'm going to want to be doing yeah. three to four years from now. And whether or not you can afford to block out a month for exactly, something. Yeah. Exactly, because it's, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And that being said, opera is incredibly important to me, and really for one reason, which is the, the repertoire is so amazing. It is. And yeah. I'm completely obsessed with Wagner mm-hmm. and Strauss operas, Britain operas. Oh. Peter Grimes. We could do an entire podcast to (laughs) talk about Britain operas. We really could. So it's something that I think doing operas in concert is going to be, for the moment, something very useful for me. Right. Because you don't have to give up all that time for the staging rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And maybe a lot of people don't know that a conductor will often, I mean, sometimes if it's a very famous older conductor, they'll have an assistant Mm -hmm. do the staging rehearsals for them. Sure. But I know even famous older conductors like Fabio Luisi, for example, when he does a premiere, he does the staging rehearsals himself. Oh, that's interesting. He likes to be there. He likes to get to know the singers and the cast. He likes to be present. He likes to get the piece in his system. So, and he was one of my mentors, and I've learned also how to exist as a conductor in the opera world from mainly from him. Yeah. It is a very different process. What's wonderful about it and what's worth, very much worth blocking out the time is the idea that you're sort of percolating with one piece of music for six to eight weeks. Yeah. And right now my schedule is so insane. I mean, I'm conducting, I counted, I'm conducting 20 different pieces this month. Wow. That's just the way it got scheduled because... Yeah, not by choice. Not by choice. I would have loved to overlap. Sure. But the orchestras and their seasons just, it didn't accommodate or make sense to to double up. They couldn't do it. They had a clash list and someone else, another conductor was already doing it or did it last season. Sure. And that's just what happened. And so that's a very different mentality to be in as a musician, to have to switch gears all the time from one piece to another. I mean, the, the pieces I'm conducting this month range from Sariaho mm-hmm. Violin Concerto to Rachmaninoff Second Symphony mm-hmm. to a Mozart Piano Concerto. Yeah. I mean, all ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And when you do an opera, you have one piece. Of course, it's a, a four-hour long piece. Right. But... Yeah. But it's one world that yeah. you can enter and stay in for a very long time. And maybe more fully explore. Absolutely. You get yeah. into so much more detail. Yeah. I also love working with singers. They're sort of another breed of musician. Mm-hmm. I mean, making a, making sound with your own physical body yeah. is something that's 
very, very different than yeah. playing an instrument. It Absolutely. just is. And there's something very fragile about singers. Oh. Even the most famous ones, yeah. they need so much support from you as the conductor, especially when they're on stage. I love that positivity and giving that positivity right. and giving that support to them. And I love listening to great singers and working with great singers. So that's also part of the magic of, of doing opera. You know. It doesn't surprise me to hear you say that that's an important part of opera too, because I, I get a sense from watching you on the podium, which I've done a lot this week, that there's a very generous sort of energy with you. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Being mm -hmm. somebody who's got something to give a singer. Like they, they don't, not just a tempo or a cue, but an actual support mm -hmm. system, like you mentioned, which I think is really beautiful. Mm. And, you know, speaking of Wagner and, uh, you know, concert operas, people do Rheingold. So right. why not, why not give that a shot at some point? I do want to ask you one last question. It's sort of a traditional question on our podcast, and it might seem a little ridiculous, but it's because of our name. And I'm curious, Karina, if you've ever seen a ghost. You've been in a lot of theaters now all over Europe. Have you ever seen one? If so, give us some details. Um, I, that's really funny. I have not. I don't think I've ever seen a ghost. I mean, when I was a student at Marlborough Music mm -hmm. in Vermont, it's, it's on the campus of this very old country-style college campus. Right, right. And there are some sort of attic rooms that are a little spooky. And there is a... a a ghost story that goes along with one of the, I think it's called Dalrymple, is the name of the building. And in the attic, apparently, there is a girl, a ghost girl, that lives in there. Really? Yeah. And everyone <laughs> everyone talks about it. And apparently, Marlboro is, ha is haunted. Sure. So that that's the, the closest. And it would be in a place called the Dalrymple building, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe you haven't seen one, but you've been a place where one lives, which... Is, I guess so, yeah. Which is good enough. Promise to keep your eyes open, because if you ever come back on the show, we'd love to hear a new story from you. But until then, you're conducting Tchaikovsky's Second Symphony with us as we record this week. We're all very excited. And thank you, Karina, for being a Ghostlight Podcast guest. My pleasure. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation.